last week we looked at the events in the garden leading up to, to Jesus' arrest. And we established the fact that even though there were many different groups and individuals that thought they were in control of the situation, without a doubt, Jesus was the one in control. We had that detachment of troops that came, Judas came, the officers of the chief priests and uh, uh, the elders, uh, they had sent these officers, and then these chief priests and the elders themselves uh, thought that they were in control of what was going on. We see this big scam and conspiracy to, to uh, have Jesus arrested so that they can take him to trial. So the whole thing's a setup. We know that. But we're going to see again this week that in the first three trials that, that take place, we're going to see Peter's denial, which Jesus prophesied would take place. Further evidence that Jesus was in control is, is what he said to Peter after the sword in the ear incident. We looked at that last, last week. Matthew 26, verse 53 says, Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? That's sometimes an overlooked verse when we go through this passage of Scripture because uh, we know that Jesus has that kind of power. But we also know that what he prayed in the garden, uh, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And by praying that, we tend to ignore the fact that had Jesus decided, no, we're not going on with this, I'm done, he could have brought down a band of angels and just wiped everything out, couldn't he? He, he had that power. He had that authority. Had he asked the Father for that, that would have probably taken place. But he didn't. He willingly is going to the cross. And that just shows us, as we looked at last week, who was in control, right? Jesus himself had determined, in the Old Testament, there's a prophecy that says he set his face like flint, and he was going to be moving forward to the cross uh, because of his commitment and his love for mankind and also uh, his commitment to what he and the Father had determined was going to be the plan for salvation uh, all along. So Jesus could have called upon the Father, and he could have sent this a legion of angels to, to just wipe us out, but he didn't. Just as he prayed in the garden, Father, not my will, but your will be done. So starting this morning at verse 12, it says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. In reality, it really wasn't the chains or the ropes or the soldiers that bound Jesus. It was what? It was love. He was bound by love to do what he was about to do. The love that he had for each and every one of us. It's at this point that the other gospel accounts tell us that the disciples scattered. We also saw that Jesus prophesied that, didn't he? That they will scatter. John 16, verses 31 and 32, when we uh, looked at it, they were telling him, oh, now you're speaking in plain English. Now we believe, the disciples said. And Jesus said, do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. So the disciples are scattered. But not all of them, right? We'll see in our text this morning in verse 18 that Peter and another disciple followed, the text says. Well, who was the other disciple? Most scholars agree that this other disciple that followed was John, the author of this gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It makes sense, if you think about it, if you just look ahead in the book of John, it makes sense that John was this disciple uh, because he's the only one mentioned being at the crucifixion, right? He's the only one of the disciples at the foot of the cross. It's interesting. Jesus says the disciples will be scattered. He says, Peter, you will deny me. But there's really no mention of John and what he will do, is there? In, in all four Gospels, there's no mention of John, except that another disciple followed, and then we see John at the foot of the cross. And I thought about that, and I thought, why is that? Well, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Without a doubt, we can tell from uh, textually that uh, Jesus was very close to John, and John was very close to Jesus. I like to look at it that it was on the part of Jesus, 
it was just a given that John was going to be there. That's the way I like to look at it. So John was going to be there to support and be there for encouragement uh, for Jesus during that time. But how is it that John could be with Jesus through this whole ordeal and yet not be taken himself or arrested as well? Because Jesus was in control, right? He was in control of the whole situation. Again, we saw that he said in his prayer to the Father, referenced in verse 9 last week, chapter 18, verse 9, of those whom you have gave me, I have lost none. So even though it may not seem like it, Jesus is, is totally in control. Now we're going to see as we move forward in our text this morning that there were actually, or will be, six different trials that Jesus faced. Three stages of trials in a religious court at night and three stages before Roman court the next day. But on this night, there were the first three trials. And in fact, this night was a night of threes. It's pretty amazing as you look through this passage, how many threes come up in this. Now, uh, because of that, uh, I don't, I'm not going to start a whole new religion based on threes, okay? Or a new doctrine of threes. I'm not going to write a book about the purpose-driven threes, okay? You can take comfort in that. <laughs> As Peter says in John 13, 37, he says to Jesus, I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus responds, will you? Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. So we have this night of threes. Just for information purposes, just for knowledge for you guys to, to ponder on these things. Think about this. Three times Peter said he would not deny Jesus on this particular night from the time that he was in the upper room through. Jesus takes three disciples with him on into the garden. Peter, James, and John. Jesus prays three times in the garden. The disciples, they're found sleeping three times in the garden. Three groups come for Jesus, Judas, the troops, and the officers. Carrying what? Three things, lanterns, torches, weapons. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus goes through three trials on this night with three different judges, Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin council. So what do all the threes on this night mean? I have no idea. <laughs> but it's interesting that they're there, isn't it? It's very interesting. We do know how Jesus worked it out with Peter. We'll, we'll look at that later. So again, looking at the gospel accounts in harmony with one another, Jesus had three trials that he's going to face. Trial number one was with Annas, the former high priest. Trial number two in front of Caiaphas, the current high priest, and trial number three, the Sanhedrin, that council of all the priests and the religious leaders. We all will also see, as we look forward, uh, that there will also be three trials the next day, as I mentioned. One with Pilate, one with Herod, and then back to Pilate again. And these three-day trials, they're, they're documented for us in the book of Luke. But in the three-night trials, these ecclesiastical or religious trials, the result was that Jesus would be charged with blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah. And he claimed it, we know, because it was true. He was. So, as we take our first glimpse at trial number one in verse 13, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now remember that we talked last week about the position and history of the high priest. Annas had held that position for some time. But when Roman rule took over, they determined that, hey, in order to work with this whole religious thing here in Jerusalem uh, better, to make it work out more for our advantage or to our advantage, uh, we're going to institute a new, new setup. Uh, we don't really like Annas. He's uh, uh, very proud of himself. 
He seems to have a voice within all of these people of great influence. And so we would rather have someone that we can be in more, more in control of, or so they thought. So they instituted this system of each year. The high priest position would be bid on. They basically would put in a bid for a certain amount of money. And uh, we talked last week, rather than what we see in our society today, that you bid something and it, the, the job, the position goes to the lowest bidder. In this case, it's going to the highest bidder. Whoever came up with the most money was the one that got to be high priest. And that money was given to the governor uh, you know, in, in uh, Jerusalem at that time, whoever it was, in this case, uh, Pilate. But anyway, they, they bid on this. And so because of that, and you remember we talked about that in the temple, the reason Jesus cleared the temple is because the money changes were there. Uh, they were selling uh, temple-approved sacrifices to all the people, and they were fleecing the flock, literally. They were getting very wealthy based on the things that they were doing in the temple area. That's why Jesus cleared it out twice. But because of that, and because that had happened over time for a long time, uh, Annas himself probably become very wealthy. So now Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and since they're going to do this, they want Annas out. They want somebody else in, so Annas is going to put his money behind his son-in-law Caiaphas uh, for a couple reasons. The main reason is to still be in control. And so we know that that's the case. We know that that's being worked out because why would they take him to Annas for this first trial? Why? He's not, he's not the high priest. He's just kind of the behind-the-scenes guy. But he was still very much in control, still very much in a place of influence over his son-in-law Caiaphas. So Annas had held this position for some time. Verse 14 tells us, Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Remember that when we went through John chapter 11, verses 49 and 50. It says one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, which confirms what we're talking about here, that it was a yearly position, said to them, you know nothing at all, which this is a great leader, right? You know nothing at all. <laughs> I mean, what if I were to do that in here on a Sunday morning? You know what? You guys know nothing at all. Real encouraging, isn't it? But he's actually going to say something here that is, a prophecy that's going to come to pass. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish, which is exactly what's going to happen. And not only does he say that, he brings it to pass as well, doesn't he, by uh, his uh, take on the trial. So that's in verse 14. Verse 15 now we have, if you're familiar with theater at all, we, we, we have a scene change. All of a sudden, we're moving along here on the setup for these trials, and then we have this scene change in verse 15. It shifts over to Simon Peter. It says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple that we know as John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. That disciple, this other disciple, John, was known to the high priest. So that caught my attention this week, and I thought, well, how? <laughs> Why? What, what, what's going on there? There's a lot of scholars, a lot of commentators that believe that Zebedee, who is the father of the sons of thunder, right, James and John, we know that he was a fisherman and had a pretty lucrative fishing business. And so the boats and the servants that Zebedee would have would make him somewhat of a successful entrepreneur in this, in this fishing business. So Zebedee and his boys, where would they probably sell their fish? Uh, you know, they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Obviously, there's enough people around there to support a business. But if you have thoughts of expanding that business, we want to make it bigger. you got sons coming up within the business, probably a few cousins here and there. And so you have the opportunity to expand that. Where's probably the best place to sell your fresh fish from the Sea of Galilee? Jerusalem, 
That's where the people were, right? So there are some that believe that there was maybe Zebedee's fish stand, Zebedee's fish market. I think it was one of those little stainless carts, actually, that you roll down the sidewalk. You know, we've got fish, fresh fish from the Sea of Galilee, salted, all ready to go. Uh, so we have these wealthy religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they could probably afford to buy Zebedee's fish. Now think about it, if, if this was fresh, fresh fish out of the Sea of Galilee, and you're selling it on the shores of Galilee, that might be one price, but hey, you know, we take this road show to Jerusalem, we might be able to charge more for the fish there. This is special fish imported from the Sea of Galilee, salted, all ready for you, you know. <laughs> so these wealthy religious leaders could afford to buy Zebedee's fish and would have probably bought them even from Zebedee's sons, John of which is one. He would be there. You know, the word gets around town, man, that, that Zebedee's fish market, man, they've got it going on. That's good stuff, you know. And they would get to know him. So that's speculative. We don't, we don't know that for sure, but it is possible. People like to eat fish. They had fish to sell. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because any other twist you put on it just doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense, does it? But if Caiaphas, Annas, they knew Zebedee and knew the boys as they were growing up. I don't know. It, it kind of has some credibility, I think, but we don't know for sure. Verse 16, but Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. That kind of sounds right as well when you look at that take on this because enough influence there that he could actually get somebody in. You know, a backstage pass to what's going to be happening. Verse 17, Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now this is the first time this week when I was looking at this that I really saw that. Of all of the I am statements that we see coming from Jesus, here's an I am statement from Peter. I am not. <laughs> Denial number one, right? Verse 18, Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Scene change. Verse 19, back to trial number one, continued. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Trial number two. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Scene change. Simon Peter again, <laughs> verse 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now at this point, I want to look at something. You are not also one of his disciples, are you? Which indicates what? They must have recognized that there was another disciple of Jesus around, right? And John, it seems like at this point, has a lot of freedom, doesn't he? He knows the high priest, so he's able to follow Closely, more closely than Peter, as we're going to see. But he follows. He's able to get Peter in. So it's almost as if, as if you read this, that these people standing around the fire, whoever they were, they recognized John as one of Jesus' disciples. Because you're not also one of his disciples, are you? Is what they're asking Peter. And so it, it seems interesting to me that Peter 
would have seen that, wow, John's got some cloud here. To some degree, John's able to move in and out and about among these people, and there doesn't seem to be anything going on with him. So you would think that Peter could have just said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm just like John. I'm, I'm one of his disciples. But that's not what was prophesied, was it? <laughs> we have to stay within the text and what's going on here that Peter will deny the Lord three times. He's already done it once. You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? So we have Malchus, servant of the high priest, that gets his ear shaved. Jesus heals his ear. And this was a relative of him, Malchus. And he saw this take place. Did I not see you in the garden with him? You know, I wonder if the tone of this whole conversation that's taking place is different than maybe we have perceived it. In that, I know myself growing up, I've looked at this and I've always thought, these people are saying these things to be accusers, to bring an accusation against Peter. Maybe it's just more of an observation. Because here's a relative of him who uh, ear Peter cut off, but yet he, he also saw that same ear healed, did he not? Which would have had to have had an impact on him. So just as a possibility, be thinking that maybe this wasn't accusation as much as observation, which kind of sheds a whole new light on this scene, doesn't it? Verse 27, Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. I would think for Peter, that would have had to have been the loudest rooster he has ever heard. <laughs> that would have just rang through. It would have been so apparent to him what just took place. So aside from the fact that Jesus was being wrongly accused... What else was going on in this kangaroo court that we're going to see? Now, kangaroo court is not a biblical term. A kangaroo court is defined as a mock court in which the principles of law and justice are disregarded or perverted. It is often held to give the appearance of a fair and just trial, even though the verdict has in reality already been decided before the trial has begun. Kangaroo court. You might be thinking, Pastor Jim, if kangaroo court's not a biblical term, why use the term kangaroo court? I guess I should have just jumped over that. Maybe I should have just kept that in my pocket. <laughs> Nevertheless, these trials were infused with false accusations and false witnesses. They were not even operating according to their own law. They had their Mishnah, and part of that Mishnah laid down the way that they were to uh, carry out uh, a courtroom uh, situation. So the Mishnah, it was a written compilation of the oral traditions of Judaism. So they weren't just orally communicated. At some point in time, they wrote them down, and they were considered to be law. And it contained very specific rules to be followed in a courtroom. Not just rules, not just guidelines, but laws, their own laws. Now let's look at them real quickly at by number, which they were broken from the Mishnah. Number one rule, no trials during night hours. And broke that one, didn't they? It was night. Trials were not to occur on the eve of a Sabbath or during festivals. And it was Passover. Number three, all trials must be public. Secret trials are strictly forbidden. And what happened? Private trials with Annas and Caiaphas. Number six in their law was an accused person was not to testify against himself. No witnesses. Jesus himself was questioned. Number 12, 
The high priest was never to participate in the questioning of the accused. We have the current high priest and the former high priest both. And number 18 in this set of laws, there should be 24 hours between judgment and before the sentencing. And we know that Jesus winds up being sentenced immediately, doesn't he? Trial number three. Trial number three is not listed in John's gospel. It is in Mark chapter 14, if you guys want to look at that sometime. We're going to take a closer look at it again next week, but he's brought before the Sanhedrin. But we can see in all three of these trials that Jesus was judged unfairly and unlawfully. That's just a given. We know that. But in this, there's also application for us. When falsely accused of something, we need to realize we're not alone in that, right? How many of you have been in a place where you've just been out and out falsely accused of something? Once somebody said, you're a very intelligent man, you know. <laughs> I was falsely accused. <laughs> I'm, I'm a somewhat intelligent man. <laughs> Let's not go so far as to say a very, okay. It seems to carry more weight. But Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. For all that Jesus went through, he understands, doesn't he? He went through a situation where he was totally, completely, wrongly accused. So if we're in that situation, he can sympathize with that, can't he? He understands that. But also we can learn from how did he handle it and how do we handle it? Do we say, when we're being wrongly accused, oh, Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Can we honestly do that? Where we can come before the Father and just say, I don't know how this is going to work out. I've been wrongly accused. But Lord, help me to move forward in humility, recognizing that you're working in their life and you're working in my life as well, and your will be done. So Jesus did nothing wrong, and he was wrongly judged. However, Peter... Peter's example here. We know Peter didn't fall into sin. We've used that phrase, haven't we? All of we. Oh, they, they or I or we fell into sin. That's so wrong. <laughs> we don't fall into sin. We walk into sin one step at a time, don't we? It's been there. The temptation is there. We're drawn into that temptation. We take a step, we take a step, we take a step. We don't just be you know, walking down the street one day and, whoa, man, I just I didn't see that coming. I fell right into sin. Now, we will say, didn't see that coming, but we should have, shouldn't we? Well, we can see from this account and the other gospel accounts six distinct things that Peter did as he walked into sin, one step at a time. We're going to take a look at those. Number one, overconfidence in the flesh. Peter had that going on a little bit, didn't he? He had said previously, I will lay down my life for your sake. Will you? It's the equivalent of saying, and we know we've been there, I got this. I know what I'm doing. I can handle it. I thought that several times here working with the electric uh, <laughs> here in the building. I got this. I can handle it. <laughs> Maybe not that one, but <laughs> actually happened right up here, as a matter of fact. But <laughs> we do that, don't we? We have overconfidence in the flesh. We believe that we can do this or do that. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 31 says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We never want to be overconfident in the flesh, do we? Our flesh will always lead us towards temptation. And if we become overconfident in that... Now, don't get me wrong. We can be confident in 
skills that we have. We can be confident in talent that we have, gifts that we have. We can be confident in those things. However, where did they come from to start with? The Lord. The Lord gave us all of those things, so let's not boast in what we can do or what we have done. Let us boast in the Lord, who was the initiator of all of those things in us, for His good pleasure and for His glory. So we should never be overconfident in the flesh, and Peter certainly was. That's number one, overconfidence in the flesh. Number two, sleeping instead of praying. Not just once, but three times. And <laughs> when you look at that scene, it's hard for me to kind of understand that in some ways because you're sleeping, Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, comes and says what? Wake up, watch and pray. It seems like that would carry some real weight, doesn't it? It seems like God just spoke to me and said, Wake up, stay awake, watch and pray. However, when I took that situation and I overlaid that template on my own life and I realized, oh, no, uh, I do that too. <laughs> we all do, don't we? We all fall short in that. This is encouragement from the Son, watch and pray. Matthew 26, 41, we looked at it last week. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. From that verse, how do we answer this question? How do we fall into temptation? I think from this verse, it's by a lack of watching and praying. Which makes sense, doesn't it? We are to be aware and put it in prayer. So a lot of the things that Brian has been sharing the past three weeks uh, on Wednesday nights. Boy, that holds true with that. We should be watching. We should be aware of those things. But what should we do with it? We should be praying. We should be taking it to the Lord in prayer because He is the one and the only one that can handle that, right? He's the only one that can change the direction of that. Yes, we can be very confident in what God has taught us. We can be convicted by certain things. And we can come up with a course of action, but that course of action better be based upon God's Word and what God is leading us to do. And what is He saying here? Pray. Watch and pray. I think uh, even in the current trend that we have in our, in our government, we see all that's going on in politics. What would God have us do with that? Watch and pray. It doesn't mean that we don't become active in politics. We have... Uh, the opportunity to vote, and we should use the vote, without a doubt. However, we should be watching and praying, recognizing, being aware of what's going on, and praying about those very things. That goes from the highest level of any government in our country all the way down to our families, right? The family unit. Dads, we are the leaders in our home, ordained by God, to be the leaders in our homes. We should be watching what's going on in our homes, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, our jobs, all those things around us that we are influenced by. We should be watching and we should be praying for the protection of our family, also for guiding and leading and directing our families. Be aware. Put it in prayer. Prayer for Petition, certainly, but prayer also for protection. Prayer that recognizes who He is, who we are in Him, and what He wants us to say and do as we are being led and directed by Him. So number one, overconfidence in the flesh. We see that in the life of Peter. We certainly see the sleeping instead of praying. And number three, acting on his own leading. We use the phrase, God lead us. I want to be led by God. Was God leading Peter to pull out the sword and cut off the ear? No, he wasn't even leading him to pull it out and cut off the head or an arm or whatever. But all Peter could muster up was severing an ear. 
Jesus had just said, right before this in our text, if you seek me, what? Let these go. And from our text, there's no pushback on that, is there? There's nothing that indicates they're going, oh, wait a minute, nope, not going to do that. Jesus was in control. Jesus said that because that is what he wanted to take place, that that is what would happen. And we know at least nine of these guys took that to heart, and they scattered, didn't they? They left. Peter and John hanging around. But Jesus has said, if you seek me, let these go. That was going to take place. Peter didn't have to draw the sword, did he? But we've got to give Peter a little bit of credit. Was Peter drawing his sword to protect himself or because they, was, they were about to arrest the Lord? I don't know. That's on the list. We can ask Peter when we get to heaven. <laughs> Why, Peter? Why? And really, all you could get was an ear, you know? I mean, we want to ask him that, right? <laughs> Peter still felt it necessary to draw the sword. If we're being overconfident in the flesh, if we're not being guided by the Lord in prayer, by watching and praying, we act on our own in the flesh, don't we? We don't have that influence, that guidance, that direction from the Lord to act in the way that He would have us act. We act on our own. And we all know who that, how that works out, don't we? We make a mess of things. <laughs> how many times as married couples... Have you had an argument? Go ahead, raise your hand. I've had them too. Never, never had an argument? <laughs> now my whole goal now is to figure out how I can make that happen. You know, <laughs> How can I drive a wedge between Russ and Tracy so an argument happens? <laughs> I know you're just messing with me. But <laughs> uh, why do those arguments happen? either selfishness on the part of one person or the other, or both. <laughs> selfishness comes into play, doesn't it? The flesh comes in and starts to take control, and a mess of things happens, rather than watching what's going on and praying. Now, we all want to be right, don't we? <laughs> we all not only want to be right, we're very confident that we are right, right? Rather than watching the situation and praying about it. Guys, you want to diffuse an argument quicker than any way possible? Is when the argument starts, now I'm not indicating that the wife starts the argument. Let's just say in this particular circumstance, she does. <laughs> just throwing that out there, because sometimes it does happen that way. Very little, but sometimes. The wife starts it. And the husband says, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of watching on what's happening here, and before we go any further, I just want to go and pray. What a way to diffuse the situation. They got nowhere to go, guys. It's, it's done at that point. <laughs> but we make a mess of things because we act out of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That just seems pretty simple, doesn't it? There's a very simple rule for us to follow. Walk in the Spirit, and we're not going to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. What a key phrase in a scripture, that last part. So that you do not do the things that you wish. <laughs> we need to be in a place where we're doing the things that God wishes, right? And the best way to see that that takes place is for us to walk in the Spirit and not walk in the, in the flesh. By walking in the Spirit, we don't do the things that we want to do, but as we are led by the Spirit. And when we don't, the Lord is still there to heal and forgive, isn't He? He is. He loves us that much. So number one, overconfidence in the flesh. Number two, sleeping instead of praying. Number three, acting on his or our own leading. Number four, following Jesus at a distance. 
there is a huge danger of not staying close to Jesus. Galatians 2.1 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. Now to drift away here in the middle of Colorado is not necessarily a term that we're quite as familiar with. Certainly out on Carter Lake. But you're kind of hemmed in on all sides on Carter Lake, aren't you? But like with Tracy and Russ coming from Hawaii, there's a lot of water out there. So I've heard, never been there. <laughs> but there's a lot of water out there. On a map, looks like there's a lot of water. So if you got out there five miles from shore and just started to drift, who knows where you're going to wind up, really? You start to drift away. As we sail along spiritually in our walk with the Lord, we don't have to really be that concerned about a, the danger of a bomb sinking us, but it's the process of slowly drifting away. Our faith doesn't sink. We just slowly drift away. We move from a place of being close to God to not as close to God and not as close to God and not as close to God and we find ourselves not very close to God. We haven't been watching and praying. We haven't been disciplined to stay close to the Lord. So we just start to slowly drift away. I think we've probably all experienced that to one point or another. We, we find ourselves in a place, Lord, how did I get here? I, I was felt so close, and yet I've allowed the flesh to sneak in and lead me away to a point where I turn and I'm like closer to temptation and sin than I am to the Lord, and I need to get back, right? I've drifted away. So we slowly drift away. How does that happen? This verse clear, makes it clear, I think, by not taking heed to what we have learned not staying close to Jesus and His Word. He's taught us again and again and again and again. We look at Peter's life, and we sit back and we go, wow, in a, with a heart of judgment going, Peter was with the Lord all the time. He was one of the top three, wasn't he? Close to the Lord, and yet he drifted off. <clears throat> Fell asleep, didn't he? He wasn't watching and praying. We think of all the things that Peter got to see, all the things that he got to experience, all of the things that the Lord told and taught Peter. How could Peter deny the Lord three times? How could that happen? Not taking heed to what he had learned, not staying close to Jesus and his word, following Jesus at a distance. Number five, we see Peter getting warm at the enemy's fire. As Christians, trying to warm ourselves with the world's ways, warming up to the world, we find that we have too much of the world to enjoy the Lord and too much of the Lord to enjoy the world, don't we? That happens. We're just like, I'm in this situation, and boy, this looks attractive. I just don't feel comfortable here. What is that? The spirit battling against the flesh, isn't it? You don't want to go there. Get out, turn around, leave, whatever the situation is, draw close to God. Trying to warm ourselves, trying to draw close to what the world offers and what the world has to say rather than what God would have us to do and what God has to say. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Brings to mind a verse in James, chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's a promise. All I have to do is set my focus upon, pointed in the direction of drawing close to the Lord, and the promise is what? He'll draw close to us. Now, he'll never leave us or forsake us. We know that's true. But yet, we do have the opportunity by walking in the Spirit to draw closer to God, closer to God, and closer to God. 
And I think we've all experienced that. We've experienced those times in our Christian walk where we're like, man, I just feel the presence of the Lord. Well, the presence of the Lord is always there. It's just whether or not we recognize it, right? Have we drawn close to the Lord in such a way that we see that He is there with us? We recognize His presence with us. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. So rather than being drawn by the world, enamored by what the world offers as it appeals to our flesh, walking in the Spirit would just say, nope, talk to the hand, you know, not going there. I'm going to draw as close to God as I can possibly get. Getting warm at the enemy's fire. Number six, speech that gives you away. In Matthew 26, verse 73, as Peter is warming himself by the enemy's fire, those who stood by said, Surely you are also one of them, for your speech betrays you. And then Peter proves it to be true in the next verse. It says, Then Peter began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. Now that puts a whole other emphasis on these denials, doesn't it? It wasn't that, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. He reached a point here, Matthew's gospel, his account of this, that he began to curse and swear. In the Galilee region, there was probably some way in which he talked that gave away that he was a Galilean. Your speech gives you away. But then we see this take a turn, don't we? It may have been the Galilean speech, but now all of a sudden, Peter's cursing and swearing. Ever curse or swear? You don't have to answer that. Speech can work both ways, can it? Speech that would support us and our claim to be Christian and speech that would leave it in doubt. <laughs> We've probably all been there, haven't we? A good, firm hammerhead to the thumb. We don't just go, ouch, that really hurt. That's typically not, <laughs> our response is a little different, isn't it? <laughs> hopefully we keep it in check hopefully it doesn't go to the Peter level here where we start cursing and swearing and if we do what does that speech do it gives us away doesn't it we have the opportunity to speak words that are encouraging and uplifting or not Ephesians 4.29 says let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. I've seen over the years that what I was allowed to say and not allowed to say when I was growing up, is it's okay to say today, right? There's been a desensitizing, kind of goes along with Brian's thing, in our culture about what's acceptable and what's not. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. So where's that line? Where's the line for corrupt word? What's our definition of that? For all of us, it's probably different, isn't it? What we should be asking is what? What's corrupt from God's perspective? Peter made a lot of mistakes. We know that. Especially that night. Mistakes that we can relate to. Each one of these points we can relate to. But we do see that after the resurrection, Jesus restores Peter to ministry. Think about this, three stages of Peter's ministry. Peter was at the fire, warming, warming himself. Peter was under fire with all these questions and denials while he was warming himself. But then we see Peter was on fire where he preached and 3,000 were saved. Peter was transformed. Something happened, didn't it? Many times when this account of Peter's denial is shared, I think that there's a verse in Luke 22, 61 that's overlooked. In Luke's account, Peter denies the Lord for the third time. The rooster crows. And then in Luke 22, 61, it says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Why is it that that's only in Luke? 
I don't know. We have God's inspired word. God wanted it to be in Luke and not in the other places. But here's something else to think about. There would really probably only be two people there that would have been able to share that Jesus looked at Peter. John and Peter. I don't have any idea. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think Peter told him. <laughs> I really do. I know that God's word is inspired such that there are things that are written down in the different gospels that aren't uh, written down in the others. We can all take it as truth. There's no discrepancies whatsoever. But in this particular case, I just picture Peter sitting at a campfire eating fish with Luke, and he says, you know, after the rooster crowed that third time, the Lord looked at me. He saw me. And what did Peter see? I think he saw eyes of love. Peter. Oh, Peter. I'm coming back. I'm coming back, Peter, and I got something to say to you when I get back. <laughs> it's going to be okay, dude. It's going to be all right. Those eyes of love that looked at him. Peter saw the Lord looking at him and what he had done, and P Peter remembered the word of the Lord. He remembered, you're going to deny me three times, right? When we have failed, when we are feeling like we really blew it, when we feel like there is no way the Lord could still love us, remember what? The word of the Lord. Remember His instruction, His correction, His promises. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And just as Peter denied the Lord three times, Jesus in John 21, 15-17 gives Peter the opportunity to proclaim his love for him three times. We'll look at that later. The result of that, Peter is restored and is used mightily of the Lord. We can be as well, can't we? How many of you messed up this week, this morning? During my teaching. No. <laughs> We're a mistake looking for a place to happen most of the time, aren't we? We fall short. We fail. But the eyes of the Lord are looking upon us in love and gives us the opportunity to be restored because of who He is and who we are in Him. Remember the word of the Lord. Amen.